Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What is up, my friends? We got a great show for you today. A returning guest is Porter Stansberry, one of my favorite investment writers and narrators. We spend some time catching up on what he's been up to the last few years and also his newest venture, Porter and Company, which was launched last year. In today's episode, Porter shares why he chose to launch a new research firm. He walks us through the major themes he's focused on over the next cycle capital efficient, cash flowing companies, a big upcoming distressed debt cycle, and the energy transition. Plus, He shares some names and ideas for each. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Porter Stansberry. Porter, my friend, welcome back to the show. Matt, it's it's genuinely a pleasure to be here. And I'm super happy for you that your podcast has turned into a sensation. I I think you are definitely the leading financial podcaster in the world right now. And, you know, the way you got started in the business wasn't as a media personality, but you have obviously a knack for it. Congratulations. Thank you. I got started as a nerd. So this is a lot for a nerd, but uh, this is a very great behavioral psychology move there, Porter, you know, butter up the host, get him nice to throw you some softballs. I actually listened to our old conversation, which stands the test of time, by the way, listeners will put the link in the show notes, but it was in 2016, five plus years since you and I connected on the podcast, which is too long. We should be doing this annually at most because I love catching up with you, listening to you, hearing what you have to say. But update our readers. Where do we find you today? I know, I, were you out on the water? Did I hear fishing yesterday? I was uh, fishing yesterday. We had a pretty good day. Went two for two on sailfish, which is a fun day and caught some meat fish along the way. It's beautiful winter in Miami. The weather has been spectacular. It's 75 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. And I'm inside talking to you. So you must be somebody special. Well, on the YouTubers, you can see some fish in the background behind Porter. But I love uh, keeping up with your your fishing exploits. I come from a family of fishermen. So I need to join you one of these days and get out there. I'm not able to fish as much as I used to, Meb, because as you may have heard, I retired in December of 2020. Or as I like to put it, I was suddenly unbusy. 
And so I spent about three years fishing and doing other activities on the water. And June of 2022, I launched a new financial advisory business, Porter & Company, which is what we're here to talk about mainly for investors. And I'm, I'm back in the game, so to speak. And so now I can only fish. Well, this is, this is actually, this is the first time I've gone fishing in 2023 and only the second time I've gone fishing in six months. So too much work, not enough play for Jack. Well, it's funny to look back on the, the first conversations. We were talking about things. We were talking about your farm in Maryland. And I was like, oh, farming crop prices are in the tank. Like what a terrible business. And here we are where like the crop prices have tripled <laughs> since then. But you had a great quote which I've used in various conversations since, but it got cut off. So we're going to have to update it. You had a quote, and this was kind of like Porter life advice. You're like, your 20s are for your learning, 30s are for your earning, 40s are for your owning. Porter, you just turned 50. You you you, you cut it off. What, what are the 50s for? <laughs> Fishing, and I mean, or starting a new business, apparently. Your 50s are for doing everything again, but better the second time. So I separated from my wife of 20 years and 2018. I'm uh, remarrying in July. I have a new baby, an unexpected new baby. Congratulations. Thank you. So I find myself in my 50s uh, starting everything anew, a new relationship, a new life, a new business. So I have to update my life strategy. Your, your 20s are for learning. Whatever you spend your 20s doing is what you're probably going to do the rest of your life. And so it doesn't really matter what you make. What matters is what you can learn. And as you know, my friend Steve Sugar put me in a position to be hands-on in finance and directing portfolios at a very early age. And I, that was a great experience for me. Your 30s are for earning. You might recall that uh, in my 30s, we launched Stansbury Research, which grew from a $36,000 investment all the way to a $3 billion IPO. So that was a very good earning uh, decade. And then uh, that transferred, of course, into owning all, a lot of that equity in my 40s. So what will my 50s be about? Learning, earning, owning, I don't know, something about redoing. <laughs> yeah, well, we can check back in as we, uh, you haven't been through it yet. So we'll experience it together as I get there. You know, I know the answer to this, or I at least think I know the answer to this, but many listeners would say, look, you know, they have this fantasy, this dream. All right, I'm going to be successful, you know, have this farm, we'll have a boat, get to the point and say, I'm just going to retire, sit pina coladas on the beach. What did a... Uh, Hans Gruber say in Die Hard, he's going to say, sit on the beach and, and collect 20% interest. This is this is 80s movies. So back in the days when there was 20% interest. We're rapidly returning to those days. I know. I know. And RIP, Alan Rickman, I think is the actor's name, passed away, I think, last couple of years. But you decided not to just rest on your laurels and are starting a new venture. Give us a little behind the scenes origin story preview of kind of what you guys have started building and what the vision is. What happened with me was we built this great business and it was it is a phenomenal business. Uh, when I retired from Stansbury Research in December of 2020, the previous 12 months, we had produced $150 million in cash, free cash flow, and we had over a million paying subscribers. And roughly, roughly 25% of our file were lifetime subscribers. So it's a very stable, very good business with a lot of talent in it. The financial performance of the company allowed us to reinvest heavily in all kinds of different technologies, software, people. So we had a, a really good suite of services to offer investors. And we had some people come to us uh, from London. And I'm going to leave everybody's names out of it because I'm not trying to cast any blame. It's just a terrible circumstance. They promised us $400 million in exchange for 
more or less 15% of our shares. And then in doing so, we would go public. So this was going to be a SPAC transaction. When we went to close the deal, though, the $400 million had disappeared because all of their investors had redeemed. And for reasons that are very murky and which I still don't understand, our side agreed to close the deal with no cash. So I ended up selling $3 billion business to other people, but I never made any money from it, not a single penny. And the people who we sold it to clearly didn't know what they were doing. And within a year had run the business into the red. Now, how you take a business that makes $150 million a year in cash and end up with losing money, I really can't even fathom. But the stock collapsed from around 15 to now below $2. And so I've been buying back as much stock as I can because I would like to have a say in the company and help turn it around. And in order to facilitate not going bankrupt and having cash to invest more in what's now called MarketWise, I started Porter and Company in June of 22. And it's just me and a handful of old colleagues. These are all people I've known for decades. And we're working out of one of my barns on the farm. And we're doing what we've always done, which is try to find really, really good businesses that are trading at prices that we think make no sense. And, you know, I've been wanting to say this to you for a long time because I've been thinking deeply since I started uh, listening to your podcast and have known you for years. You and Steve Sugarwood's approach to the markets as top-down people just makes no sense to me. And I say that, of course, with all due respect. The performance of your ETF speaks for itself. It works. And so does Steve's track record. It works too. But it just makes no sense to me because ultimately what I think when you bet on a stock index or you bet on a subcategory of stocks or any kind of broadly diversified entity, any kind of index like that, what you're really betting on is the stock multiple. Because if the market multiple goes up, you're going to make a lot of money doing that. If the stock market goes down, you're probably going to lose a lot of money doing that. And that all depends, of course, on interest rates. The stock multiple is dominated by interest rates, which goes to the bond market. And you know what God said to the bond trader when the bond trader got to heaven? God said, hey, what do you think interest rates are going to be doing next year? The point is that it's very difficult to know what the stock multiple is going to be. Very difficult. And so in my career, what I've always tried to do is not understand the stock or the stock multiple or even the bond market or interest rates. What I've always tried to do is figure out which business is going to win because the stock price and the business will not stay disconnected forever. A great example of that is Tesla. Tesla is in a very, very tough industry. And even though Tesla is a very good business, it does not justify anything like the stock price. So eventually, sooner or later, Tesla's going to trade a lot more like Porsche or a lot more like BMW or maybe even more like General Motors, depending upon where it settles operationally. It's not going to be Apple, trust me. So that business and that stock are, aren't interesting to me because it's a pretty lousy business and it's a definitely an overpriced stock. What I like to do is find a great business that can survive an entire cycle and consistently outperform its peers trading at a price that makes no sense. My answer to what the question was, I think, was that when you find people that are entrepreneurs and creators, at their very core, they can't stop creating art. Now, art could mean actual paintings, it could mean designing, building companies. In your case, you're a builder. But I will give you a compliment. There's probably only on one hand, if I was to count my favorite writers and narrators, 
about markets. Morgan Housel is a great one because I'm like the quant side of the brain, right? But the people that write incredible stories and you're one of them. And so I love reading every single one of y'all's pieces. There's not something I don't learn because it's a lot of financial history. So my answer to this was that you can't help yourself creating and being an artist. So when you're ready to LBO, let me know. Uh, I can contribute my $10,000. But I do love writing about financial history. And, I, and I, I couldn't have stayed away from writing and publishing for long. You're right. I love doing it. And I love crafting a great story. Well, so you hit on like five different things we could use as jumping off points that I think are great. I mean, one of the biggest ones that we've tried to been telling people over the past uh, cycle is, yes, you have to make somewhat of a distinction between a business and a stock, right? You could have a great business and the stock is crazy expensive. And, and there's so many examples from the 2000 bubble where you had these great businesses that continued to grow for 10, 15 years, but the stock went nowhere and vice versa, of course. But we'll talk about where you think the world macro ideas looks like. But jumping off from what you were just talking about, about good companies, I don't know anyone that loves a stock like you love Hershey's. Is, is that fair? Is, is Hershey's like your favorite, like favorite stock over the years? It's a, and, and Hershey, of course, right now is an expensive stock. It is an incredible business. And what's so amazing about it is it only has to grow at rates that are similar to GDP, but because it's so much more capital efficient than any of its peers, it's, the stock is going to outperform. I mean, it's inevitable. Could somebody wreck it? They could, they've tried before. But um, it's very difficult to unseat something like Hershey's that has such a simple product that is so adored. Well, there's the old Buffett quote. He's like, I always invest in companies an idiot can run because eventually one day they will. Let me give you my favorite company. And I do want to talk about where the world is heading. I do have a macro view, and I think it's important, and I want to get to it. But what I want also to reach investors is I want my message to be, if you own a great business, number one, you should never sell it. So the macro considerations completely go out the window. The only question is when you should buy it. Again, I'd like to actually give it a real example because I mean, there's a lot of people who claim that they're in for the long run. And then, of course, next week when they get scared, they recommend selling everything. So one of my most contrarian investment recommendations of all time was buying NVR, the home builder, in the second half of 2007. And you, if you go back in time, you'll remember that the housing collapse of 08, 09 began in the, in the summer of 07 with the collapse of subprime mortgages. And it was very clear by that point that real estate prices were rolling over and the home builders were going to be in trouble. And in fact, if you bring up a chart, you'll see that NVR stock began to decline in 2005, peaked in 2005, began to roll over and didn't bottom out, of course, until the spring of 09. So here am I in the middle of this ongoing absolute avalanche of stock price. And I say, you should buy NVR. Now, I didn't say buy it today. I said buy it below a certain price. And I explain why. If you don't mind, I'd like to, I'd like to quote the newsletter because it's eerie how this worked out. So forgive me for a, a quote here, but I think if you listen carefully, you see why it's worth it. So I say to the reader, when should you buy NVR? The stock seems to have found a bottom around $400 per share. The company's operating earnings peaked in 05 when it made $1.1 billion. I think it's safe to assume normalized earnings over the long term will average out to about half that peak level, or about what the company earned in 2002. So let's say $500 million a year. 
putting even a low multiple on these earnings six times to adjust for the company's inherent cyclicality, sorry, that's tougher to say, gives you an estimated market cap of $3 billion, which is 30% more than the stock price today. I'm sure my timing is way, way, way too early. It was two years too early. But I'm prepared to average down to be very patient. If you're willing to do the same and buy shares regularly over the next three to five years, you should buy shares at the NVR below $450. Do not use a stop loss in this position as NVR stands no chance of going bankrupt, but sentiment in the sector is very likely to decline. I wouldn't put more than 4% of my portfolio in this position given the volatility, and I wouldn't invest any money I thought I might need before 2020. Why buy now? The company is probably worth two or three times its current price. I believe earnings will begin to improve here before long and before the rest of the sector. And thanks to the company's relentless share buybacks, the compound returns on this stock will very likely be more than 25% a year for the next 10 years. That's a great investment, but it's going to be a wild ride. So you'll have to be very patient. So guess what the average compound annualized return was on NVR over the next 14 years? It was over 20%. So NVR's earnings bottomed in 08 at $100 million, and then they grew from there. And on average, from 2008 until now, the company earned on average $493 million a year, which is exactly, exactly what I forecast, exactly what I predicted, and the return was exactly what I expected over a very long period of time. And that was only possible, not because I have a crystal ball, but because NVR's business is so amazing. And so what do they do? They build houses. Well, the houses are the same as the next guy's houses. How can that be? How can one business deliver such better results for investors? Keep in mind, it never lost money during the worst housing crisis in history. How is that possible? A lot of other homeowners almost went bankrupt. They had to combine. Many of them did go bankrupt. What explains that? Well, it's very simple. NVR's model is capital efficient. It doesn't own any land. 98% of the homes they build, they build on land that they bought an option for. So they do not have the risk of having this huge levered asset on their balance sheet. And as a result, the returns on assets for NVR are way better than the industry. So NVR makes 25% a year on its assets. It makes 50% a year return on equity. And it buys back stock at smart times, which makes it an absolutely perfect long-term investment because it's a simple business that everyone can understand. It's a simple business that we're going to continue to need. And it's by far the best run company of its kind in the world. Here's the good news. If you're an investor, we are once again facing a housing crisis. Mortgage rates have skyrocketed. Demand for housing has collapsed. These stocks have collapsed. So they're now trading very cheaply. And the insight I've got for you is one of the worst run companies in the sector was Ho Hovnanian, HOV. And it should have gone bankrupt, but found a way by raising additional equity and diluting people to survive 2012, 2013, 2014. But the business was just a zombie. It was paying $100 million a year in interest expenses, and it, couldn't, it could barely earn that much. So all you were doing was funding the bondholders. You weren't building any equity in the business. Well, a bunch of executives from NVR went over to Hovnanian, bought the stock on the cheap, raised money by buying back the debt on the cheap, on the discount, retiring it. Now Hovnanian's the interest expenses are, are, I think, around $35 million a year, much more manageable. And they did it by selling all of Hovnanian's land. So they're copying NVR's model. So last year, 
70% of the homes that Hovnanian built were on optioned lots. And as a result, the return on assets at that company is now 30%, which is more than NVR. And the, R, the return on equity is now 53%, which is more than NVR. And because everyone is both afraid that it's going to go bankrupt and afraid there's going to be a housing crisis, you can buy Hovnanian today for less than one times earnings. So for the listeners, you've had millions of subscribers. We have over 100,000 investors. One of the hardest things consistently is investors love to hold, they love to sell their winners too early. So if you look at a lot of these books, 100 baggers, stories like that, that illustrate, hey, look, you know, you can get these 100 baggers, life-changing wealth, if you think about it, you know, 10 grand into a million, but often they take. 10 years, 15 years, you know, maybe even 20, but you want to hold on to them. Like what, what advice do you have to people as you've been through this and done it over the years to kind of illustrate to them the concept of hanging on? Because I think it's tough for me. I like investing in private startups because I don't get the choice to sell, right? Like it's, they go out of business, they fail or in three, five, 10, 20 years, something happens, M&A, or they go public or something. But I don't have that choice. It's taken away from me. And as a quant, you know, my funds do the rebalancing, choice is taken away. Because I guarantee you, if I own a stock, it doubles. I'm like, oh, baby, let's go on vacation. Let's go, you know, in my mind, I'm already like, but a two bagger is only one step on the way to a five, 10, 100. What do you tell people? It's funny. I, I'm not quite sure what to tell people because that is... It's like you're speaking um, not a foreign language. It's like you're from outer space. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think the difference is I actually fall in love with these businesses. I don't fall in love with the stocks. Please understand that. I'm, I love these businesses and I can't wait for the stock to go down so that I get to own more of the business, but I don't want to pay too much for it. And it never would occur to me to sell it. I don't want to sell it. I know that company is compounding my wealth. And I also know that Every year, they get a little bit better. Every year, they grow their moat a little bit wider if they're the kind of businesses that they are. There's no question in my mind that Hershey's brand is worth a lot more than it was 20 years ago. The Accounting Standards Board says that Hershey's not allowed to revalue the, the, you know, their goodwill as a line item. They can only depreciate it, which I think is an accounting change that someone we're going to have to make. So there's a lot of value that gets hidden that you don't get to see, but eventually appears in the form of cash flows and dividends. And man, I just love that. I don't think about my, the cash that I have in my investments in the same way that I think of cash that I get in the form of income from my companies or dividends or my salary. I always like to make money. I like it when the money in my checking account goes up and I get to spend it. But I don't think of spending my investments. I just don't think of it that way. When the stock price doubles, it doesn't change my blood pressure at all. I'm just frustrated because now it's probably too expensive to buy. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things about reading y'all's work is not always just like the plain vanilla Hershey's, the plain chocolate Hershey's sort of ideas, but you guys have always been independent thinkers and come up with often off the beaten path ideas, at least to me and I think to the mainstream media. And you, you've written a few pieces recently that I think are especially illustrative of that. So we'll, we'll dig into a couple of them. It's funny because if you look back at our first conversation, there's a conversation we had where we were talking about really low bond yields. And I can't remember if it was you or I that said this, but one of us said, there will come a time when you have a big stock drawdown and bonds won't hedge. Everyone expects bonds to always do well 
when stocks puke. But if you look at the long history of stocks and bonds, that's not always the case. <laughs> 2022, one of the worst, if not worst years, if you look at after inflation, the traditional 60-40, because that actually happened. Now, it was a little later than our conversation, but the consensus expectation that bonds always help demonstrated not to be true. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would just argue, I would argue with anyone vehemently about this, the idea that as a retired investor, you should have a substantial investment in bonds, in my opinion, is ridiculous in a world of paper money and negative real yields. That's absolutely horrible advice. You're much better off, much, much better off in a high quality corporation that's paying you a dividend that can increase with earnings and can protect you from inflation than you are in fixed income. I'm not quite sure the, you know, the way all the laws and regulata- regulations are around managing retirees' funds and stuff like that. I think it's very difficult for you, if you're retired, to avoid that because everyone is coached to put you in fixed income. But that's a sure recipe for a financial disaster, as a lot of people found out last year. We wrote a piece during the pandemic that I don't think anyone really read or resonated with, but I really liked. And we're trying to turn it into like a white paper. The, the original topic was the stay rich portfolio. And it kind of walks through this exact line of thinking where say mo- everyone assumes bonds and T-bills are the safest investment, but let's look at history. And we demonstrated, I can't say proved because you never know in the future, but demonstrated that a diversified portfolio combined with a little cash was less volatile, had lower drawdowns, had lower 12-month worse performance than a short-term portfolio of T-bills on a real basis, which is all that matters, right? And now no one believes that. There's no corporate treasury or individual that's going to put their safe money and invest it. There's a few of us in the world that do it, but it's an interesting way of thinking. But you've talked a lot about fixed income markets in general. So not just talking about treasuries, but talking about corporates. That's been a big theme for you. It still is a big theme. I think you guys are partnering up with a Hall of Fame fixed income distress guy that you can talk about, but maybe give us a preview of kind of what you guys thinking of in that world, opportunities, pitfalls, landmines, et cetera. I would say that as an analyst, the greatest thing I have to offer investors is very detailed analysis of great businesses that you can hold forever. That's, I think, what I'm best known for and what I'm best at. Secondarily to that, I've had a lot of success over the cycles in 08, 09, and then again in 2015, 2016, capitalizing on distressed debt. And at the right times, you can definitely make more money in corporate bonds than you can make in stocks. And you can definitely do so with much less risk. And again, that's something I think that's not commonly accepted. It definitely depends on market conditions, but is certainly true in certain cycles. And we're approaching one of those cycles if we're not already in it. I personally think that high yield of many different kinds will outperform stocks this year. So I would point investors to simple things like Annalee, whose 75% of Annalee's assets are guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie and therefore backed by the US Treasury. It is now yielding, I think, around 16%. It's going to be very difficult, I believe, for the stock market to outperform Annalee's yield this year. And I don't think that mortgage rates are going to go much above where they're at now, because when they went above 7%, demand completely evaporated. And so... There is supply and there is demand. And if demand diminishes, then prices have to fall. So I don't think you're going to see mortgage rates above 7%. So therefore, Annalise's portfolio should perform very well and that dividend yield should be safe. Another example is Icon Enterprises, 
which is essentially a publicly traded hedge fund run by Carl Icahn. Most people don't know that Carl Icahn's track record is actually better than Warren Buffett's. And they don't know that because most of his investing has been private deals, for example, trading hotels in Vegas and things like that. But the people who crunch the numbers can prove to you that Icahn's outperformed Buffett. And his stock, his hedge fund is now yielding 15%. Even if he doesn't pull off some kind of amazing deal in this next year, I still believe that's a great, great investment for and I think that, again, I think that's a very safe yield. I love the old school guys. There's so many stories from their history. And Carl just continues to write like the most interesting man in the world stories. I mean, I, I, my favorite was during the original Trump election upset. He was drinking martinis at some party and left to buy like $2 billion of S&P futures as the election was going on overnight session. Like this type of person you want running your money, who's so obsessed with markets that in the middle of the night, you know, he's he's thinking about how it impacts. But his fund or his stock, IEP is the symbol, is all-time highs. And hedge funds, there's so many of them and so many of them are just kind of closet beta. You know, they just end up owning stocks for a lot more expensive, which is not what you want. You want the esoteric, the zigzag ones, the concentrated. And if you look at Icon's performance, A, it thumps the S&P, but B, it's totally uncorrelated. And he's one of my favorite characters on, on all Wall Street. How many hedge funds are paying you a 15% dividend to invest with them? He's the best. I love Carl. So that when I saw when I read that issue, it gave me a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling because he's a character. I don't know if there's anybody out there listening, but I would absolutely love to meet Carl Icahn. He lives about a mile away from me in Miami Beach. If anybody can put a lunch or a dinner together with us, I'd owe them a big favor. And I'm sure there's people listening who can do that. I'll fly down for it, man. We'll find a way to make it happen. <laughs> but uh, he's he's definitely a living legend. And I, I admire the way he lives his life. I admire the way he, he deals with his outside investors. I definitely admire the way he deals with banks and insiders who are treating people in a way that's reprehensible. You guys got to read Porter's issue on this. Maybe he'll let us link to it on the show notes, but it tells a lot of fun stories about Carl. And there was once, man, one of my favorite books, Nerd Out for a Minute. Longtime listeners may have heard this, but early in my career, as a young person, I don't even know if I, I was probably out of college when this happened, but Marvel was not the juggernaut it is today with the MCU and Avengers and everything, but it was a struggling company, was dealing with bankruptcy. One of my best investments at the time was investing in Marvel during that period, but Carl got involved and there's a book, a whole book about it. The distressed world to me is the single most interesting part of the entire world of investing, but is way way too hard pile for me. I'm like, oh my God. The, oh, that's the, why I love it. That's that why right, I love like, it. Throw, throw me in there. Give me a 700 page adventure and I, don't talk to me for three days. Yeah. So this book is a great book because it, it goes into like, I'm in the old barbarians of the gate, all these stories. But you guys are partnering and bringing on a pretty famous distressed person. Tell us about it. Yeah, go ahead. Let me lay that out for you. I, I think that this coming cycle in distressed debt is going to be the most interesting that has ever happened in the history of capitalism. I like to say that what's about to happen over the next three years is going to be the largest legal transfer of wealth in history. And there's no question that Carl Icahn is going to do way better at this than anybody else. But we're going to do really good, too, because I've gone out and recruited the absolute dean of distressed debt globally. His name is Marty Fritzen. And there isn't anybody in the distressed debt world that he wasn't a mentor to. I mean, he has taught everybody how to do it. 
He's in his seventies now, and he's going to come work for uh, my business, Porter and Company. We're going to set him up with a, a team of analysts, which we're recruiting right now. So if you are a distressed debt maniac, please reach out. I'd love to put you on Marty's team with us. But let me let me give you an example of what's happened. So as you know, the Fed has warped capitalism over the last twenty years by consistently manipulating interest rates lower than the natural rate. And that has encouraged corporate boards and corporate executives to lever their balance sheets in a way that no one would do if it was a private company. Why are they doing that? Well, because heads, they can buy back a whole bunch of stock and drive their options prices up and make themselves rich. Tails, they destroy the company, they get fired, they go get another job somewhere else and they try it again. The Stock options are a great way of incentivizing people, but not when they also have control of the capital structure. And that's the way corporate America works. So let me give you a concrete example again, because I, I focus on individual businesses. So yes, you can see this in the macro. You can look and find out that US corporations have never had more debt than they do today as a percentage of GDP. That's fine, but I want to know what's happening at an individual company level. So take a look at Harley Davidson. Harley-Davidson is a pretty simple business. They make really crappy motorcycles. No offense if you happen to like a hawk. I just don't think it's a very technically savvy bike, and I'm sure I'm right about that. Anyways, since 2004, they have added five, this is 2004, so 20 years, over 20 years, they've added $5 billion in net debt to their balance sheet. Meanwhile, their earnings have gone from around a billion to around half a billion. So their business has decreased by 50%. And in the meantime, they've quadrupled their debt load. Would anybody run their own private business this way? The answer is absolutely not. What do they do with all the money? They bought back shares. So the share count went from 300 million to about 150 million. They bought back half the stock. And the doing so, of course, drove the earnings per share higher, even though earnings, in fact, were declining. And so I'm very certain that Harley Davidson will go bankrupt in the next three years. Very certain that will happen. When there is a recession, when people begin to lose their jobs, the first thing they're going to do is sell their motorcycle. They don't have to have it. They'll get rid of it. Harley was very distressed as well back in 09, and Buffett was one of the people that helped bail it out. This time, it won't survive because the debt load is way too large. So at some point, Harley-Davidson's bondholders are going to end up becoming its equity holders. And the price that that will occur is very important. And with good analysis, we can figure out what that price is going to be. So we'll know when to buy the bonds. The answer is not yet, but there is a price at which we will buy. Because, Mev, as you know, there's no such thing as a bad bond. There's only a bad price. And so that's a great example. And I'll, I have a prediction for you that everyone's just going to completely disbelieve. But I think that Boeing is going to go bankrupt as well. And those bonds are going to be some of the most valuable investments that ever get made. That There is nothing wrong with that business. There is only something wrong with its balance sheet, and it is in terrible shape. So have, you can put that in the uh, Porter's crazy prediction that no one believes. I said that AT&T would go bankrupt. Nobody believed me. I said that General Motors is going to go bankrupt. Nobody believed me. I said that Fannie and Freddie were zeros. Nobody believed me. We could go on all day. So this is the latest one. Boeing is going to go bankrupt, and uh, you can quote me on it. We just published a piece this week. I've been collecting, I was going to save this question for you later. So we'll come back to the question for you later. You can marinate on it, but um, we could probably do a whole episode with you. Me too, because it was called Things I Believe in the Investing World that the vast majority, so 75% plus of my professional investing peers 
don't believe. And so I'm up to 20 different things now. And so I'm sure you could come up with maybe a hundred. Yeah. I just think I'm more, I'm just more certain about the few things that I do know. So for the distressed world, how actionable is this for individual investors? Is it easy? Is it hard to go and buy these individual bonds? Do they got to get an account at Goldman? Like what's the actionable piece of this? No, it's actually very easy for individuals to participate in. The hard part for individuals is just, it's different than buying a stock. So you have to know what the QCIP number is. And with most discount brokers, you have to pick up the phone and call somebody. The other fascinating thing is that, by the way, that's not always true. So for uh, interactive brokers, for example, you can buy a bond just with the QCIP number and it's, it's no problem. But the trick is, of course, some of these bonds you can't purchase. Some of them are, are 144, which is institutional investors only. And some of them are have full SEC disclosure and you can buy. And of course, we're going to focus on the bonds that are liquid like Harley Davidson's are and like Boeing's are where you can easily trade. So the hard part for individuals is just getting used to a long QCIP code and picking up the phone. That's basically the only hard parts. And of course, those are not insurmountable obstacles to success. It just is for some reason, doing it for the first time is usually hard for people just emotionally because they've never done it before. But so I would say that then look, just buy one, literally buy one bond. If it's trading at discount, it'll cost you between $700 and $400 and put it in your account and wait a month and see how it feels. And if it, it seems normal to you, then then you'll be ready to you know buy more. One difference is bonds are expensive compared to stocks. So a par on most bonds is $1,000. Sometimes it's $10,000. Most of these bonds are at par of $1,000. And so if you're going to have a diversified bond portfolio, you're going to have to have you know, a significant amount of capital. You're, you're not going to... I wouldn't recommend ever just buying one bond, just like I wouldn't recommend buying one stock. So if you get into the stress debt, make sure you're, you're spreading your bets across eight or 12 different opportunities. And I think you'll do very well. Historically, we've made money on 85% of our distress recommendations and the average annualized return is about 30%. So as you think about the timing, so I, I think that's great advice on the diversifying cross positions. So many investors, a classic mistake is they get to a new area, doesn't matter if it's stocks, startup investing, bonds, whatever, and they just cannonball into the pool, right? They put all their money, half their money into the first one or two investments and then if it works out, they're brilliant and they continue with their terrible position sizing and eventually go bust. Or it does poorly and they say, oh, that was stupid. I'm not doing that. What an idiot Meb and Porter were. So starting small, diversifying across time, diversifying across positions, I think is really thoughtful. How should people think about the cycle when it comes to this? So like some of these positions and ideas, is it a consistent opportunity set? Is it something where you're trying to wait till it hits the fan? How do you think about it? Well, I would say like, like anything else, there's probably always an opportunity somewhere, right? At any point, there's special situations. I can remember we we did a Chuck E. Cheese bond a couple of years ago, and it was a special situation where I wouldn't have recommended the uh, the sector generally, but again, it was a special situation that was unique. So there's always an opportunity, but what I wait to do is I want to see the spread widen enormously between distressed bonds, low-rated bonds, triple C bonds, and the treasuries. And I'm, I'm looking to see at, you know, at least a 10% gap. And you, know, you can see bigger gaps than that. And the wider that spread gets, the more distressed that sector becomes, the better the pricing is, the better the opportunities are. And so if you want, you can do what I do, which is you can completely ignore the sector, except for once every 10 years. And then when it is flashing that there's, there are a lot of opportunities, 
then you go out there and you buy a dozen of them. And usually within three years, you've made a lot of money. And the thing about these bonds that's so neat is we have done a very good job of avoiding bankruptcy. Now, we're certainly no one's perfect. And we have had recommendations that ended up going bankrupt. But that's not the ideal. Yeah, what, we, what you want is a situation that people think are going to go bankrupt, where there's enough assets that they can sell, stave off bankruptcy, and then recapitalize. And, you know, there's lots of that out there. I've never bought a distressed bond. So I may follow along just to get um, the experience of it. And that's the best way to learn, I think, is to start really small, go through the experience of actually participating and hopefully learn a lot too. It's one thing to just to read Howard Mark's memos and, and another thing to actually be doing it when uh, when it's happening. Yeah. And you know, you can, of course, make money in bankruptcy too. And we have done that as well. But the ideal situation is where you get a convertible bond that's trading at a, a huge discount from par and you get the upside in the bond and then the warrant or the convert comes in the money and you can make outrageous returns. We made, I can't remember exactly what the return was, but it was absurd. It was 900% on a um, Rite Aid bond coming out of the um, 0809 downturn. And again, I can't tell you today what our positions will end up being, but I'm hiring the best team in the world to do it with me. Marty Fritzen has been around literally forever. And I'm certain that we will come up with at least a couple of dozen opportunities that in another 10 years, people will be talking about as the, you know, the craziest opportunities that anyone ever saw. Like, how was that pricing ever even possible? And you will have situations like that. I can remember Steve Sugar and I, this was in January of 2009. There was a PIMCO mortgage fund that was made up of all prime mortgages. Prime mortgage fund. And it was yielding 28% or something like that because it was trading at such a discount. And he and I both looked at it and looked at it and it was so good, we couldn't believe it. So we had to read everything. And at some point, Steve mortgaged his house to buy it. <laughs> and we made an absolute killing. I mean, within six months, we had made you know something absurd, like 50% on, on because it was then trading at a premium. Just incredible, incredible returns when people get so fed up with risk that they just want out and they flush everything out. And there's all kinds of cool stuff that are going to happen in this in this market. There's going to be way more of that than normal because the corporate bond market has grown so much faster than the rest of finance that it's completely imbalanced. And most of the growth was in the lowest quality of investment grade. So when those things get downgraded, Who's going to buy them? There's an enormous amount of corporate debt out there that's going to be downgraded from investment grade to junk. And there isn't enough capital dedicated to junk to buy it all. So what are the prices going to do? They're going to absolutely shit the bed. By the way, my favorite stat, you mentioned Chuck E. Cheese. My son actually, who's never been to a Chuck E. Cheese in the car yesterday, he's like, let's go to a Chuck E. Cheese. I'm like, where did you even see this? Like, is this on some YouTube video or one of your friends mention it? But my favorite statistic is the founder... Of Chuck E. Cheese is also the founder of Atari, which is like if you're a child of the 80s, that's like two of the biggest brands <laughs> like smashed into one. I really admire uh, entrepreneurs that can succeed in more than one field. That's really challenging. What was the name of that hair, that shampoo guy who then started a, a tequila company, Patron? Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell. Yeah, he had a shampoo business that was incredible. And then he went and started a, a great tequila company. And I always admired that. I thought that was amazing. I've, I've tried my best to start a business and a separate field. There's a 
I'm nutty about shaving and I love steel. And I hate safety razors because you always cut yourself with them. So I designed a modern safety razor and it's called One Blade. And if you're interested, please go to onebladeshave.com. You'll see what I did. I went to these incredible industrial designers in New York. I paid for this really all new design. I actually have a patent on it. And then I went out and found the best steel in the world from Japan to make our blades with. And you can give yourself a genuine straight razor quality shave at home. We even have a hot lather machine for the home. And it's been very difficult. I've spent $10 million building that business over the last decade. And we have about 100,000 customers. And we turned our first profit in December of last year. Congratulations. I own one. But as you can see, I'm lazy. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I just got back from Costa Rica for a few weeks. I didn't take any razors with me. But I own one. It's great. Oh, well, thanks, Matt. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about, you know, you're similar. I, I always have so many ideas. I'm always like, we got to go start this business. But the older I get, the more I've sort of pivoted to saying, look, I'm going to let these crazy motivated entrepreneurs start this business and then help fund them. <laughs> right. So that's a lot easier way to do it. And so it's hard because look, we always say the biggest compliment you give an entrepreneur or investors, they'd simply survive. Every single entrepreneur I know understands that most businesses fail and yet they go into it with the incredible naivety, optimism that they will be the one to succeed, which I love. It's amazing. But the reality is, uh, you know, most don't. <laughs> it's hard. It's capitalism. What I love, it's, it's also it's so fun to go back and look at the original performance that you got from somebody 10 years ago or something from a private investment and just be like, Ooh, that's not what happened. <laughs> Dude, I've reviewed over 10,000 startups in the past uh, 10 years now. And almost all are well-intentioned. Most are incredibly intelligent, passionate, but you get some conflicts of interest throughout the ecosystem and information gets left out. People don't do due diligence. The VCs have their own incentives. And so it, during the, the two-year kind of craziness surrounding February 2021, you started to see revenue projection charts that didn't even have a y-axis, meaning it was like year one, year two, year three. And it was like, and I think Masayoshi-san had one. <laughs> and it was like, it goes up, but there's no scale. Like, it, is this 1 million? Is this 10 million? Is this 100 million? doesn't matter. It's just going up to the right. And we're like, how could anyone fund this or anyone like get behind this craziness? But that's markets. That's the bubbles that we have. But that leads to the FTX kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, you often take your boat down to the Bahamas. I mean, you go dock in and see those crazy people running around. Um, I've been to Albany where he was living many times. It's very nice. Yeah. Very strange story. I'll give it that. Meb, I've got one other big idea I wanted to run by you and run by your audience. Let's hear it. I want to talk about the energy transition. Well, good. But you know how I was going to transition to this? I was going to say, Porter, you were the only writer I know that could start off a piece talking about scrotums falling off and transition it into being a fantastic investment piece. So let's move on to scrotums. We've done enough investment talk. Let's talk about balls now. <laughs> well, uh, the story about the scrotums is very, it's pathetic. It's sad. Uh, the London chimney sweeps uh, suffered the first industrial cancers. And what happened was as London moved from wood to coal as an energy source, the coal soot was cancerous. And they didn't, of course, understand that. So they kept cleaning these chimneys naked 
and the soot would collect in the in the folds of their scrotums. And of course, back then, you got to remember, everyone's taking a bath when they bathe at all in cold water. So they didn't clean themselves thoroughly. And as a result, they developed malignancies on their balls. And the treatment for that, of course, was excruciating and led to a life that was much less fun and productive. But the point of the story was that society has always taken risks in pursuit of denser forms of energy. I'll spare you the long historical lecture about how coal is 10 times more energy dense than wood and how that led to the development of pumps and and internal combustion engine and all of the industrialization that followed. But the conclusion is without a denser form of energy, the Industrial Revolution would have never happened and man would have never essentially escaped the Stone Age. Now, we did because we had fossil fuels. And the folks out there who are advocating that we should eliminate fossil fuels are threatening to return us to the Stone Age. The modern world cannot house, clothe, feed, or supply the number of people on Earth without fossil fuels, not even close. And if you look at how much money has been spent on alternative forms of energy over the last two decades, it's an enormous number. It's multiple trillions of dollars. And yet, globally, renewable energy only makes up 1% of the entire energy supply. The technology to move away from fossil fuels completely does not yet exist. It just doesn't. And so society is going to have to make a trade-off. And you've seen what happened in Germany this year. Whoops, there's no clean natural gas. So we're actually burning wood and we're burning coal again to avoid freezing to death. And I think that policy has now been revealed to be economically and intellectually bankrupt. And so the world is going to have to get serious about energy. And when you get serious about energy, you're going to discover the only way to transition to either nuclear or some other form of power that we do not yet have is natural gas. And the good news for Americans is that America is the Saudi Arabia of gas. We have more gas than everybody else by a wide margin. And that's not commonly acknowledged, but it's definitely true. And when I say it's not acknowledged, if you look at you know the official global reserves, Qatar and Iran are the leaders. But the reality is that America's reserves are so vast that they haven't all been proven yet. But that doesn't mean that they won't be. So just as an example, the Marcellus Shale is probably the largest gas reserve in the world. And 20 years ago, scientists estimated it had something like 20 trillion cubic feet. And now they're saying 400 trillion cubic feet. And what happens is, is that the more drilling that gets done, the more reserves are proved, the larger the estimates grow. And so what I see very clearly is that the world is going to move more and more towards electrical distribution, and they're going to move more and more towards natural gas as the baseload energy source. And they're going to do that because it's the cleanest alternative and it's not nuclear. Despite what the government says about your stove, which has been trending in the media. (laughs) That's the craziest thing ever. (laughs) What in the world? I I read some headlines sometimes and things start getting whipped around and I'm just like, what is going on? Like, what is happening right now? Yeah. And I've got one story for you that really illustrates a lot of the stuff, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very woke and they're going to say that I don't care about the planet and that I'm, you know, going to drown the polar bears and all this stuff. And I just want to tell you, I'm not a climate scientist and I don't pretend to be, but I am a pretty good economist. And I can tell you right now that if you forbade the use of fossil fuels around the world tomorrow, billions of people would die. 
not millions, billions. If you were to eliminate diesel fuel from the world tomorrow, you would have starvation within weeks. The world cannot operate without fossil fuels. And so all this rhetoric that you see from all these people is absolute nonsense. And the politicians who buy into it are going to end up like the like Germany's greens, and they're going to be out of a job because nobody wants to see their family starve and nobody wants to live in the cold and in the dark. So let me give you some realities about this thing. T. Boone Pickens became a friend of mine late in his life, and he was an incredible incredible investor and just a, one of the great characters in the history of finance. The dumbest thing he ever did <laughs> was to believe in peak oil, which he did for most of his life. And it bankrupted him in 96. And then led, of course, to his incredible comeback as well, because he never changed his mind. So he kept betting on natural gas futures. Eventually he was right. And he made another $8 billion on it, which was great. His plan he believed we were running out of fossil fuels. So he thought we had to save fossil fuels for, for, for transportation, for jet fuel, and that we should use everything else to generate electricity, including wind. So in 2008, he ordered 667 1.5 megawatt turbines from General Electric, which was, I think, the largest turbine order in the history of the, of the space. It was going to cost him $2 billion dollars. And his plan was to build all of these windmills on his farm, which is called Mesa Vista. It's in Roberts County, which is the very north part of Texas next to Oklahoma. And uh, he was well on his way. He was two years into the project when he discovered that his ranch was not anywhere near the rest of Texas's electrical grid. And it was going to cost him $5 billion to build enough towers and wires to connect his wind farm to the uh, Texas power grid. And that made the whole thing, of course, uneconomic. And he lost $2 billion on the deal. I mean, that's from Boone Pickens, who could have raised all the money in the world and has plenty of the smarts and everything like that and still lost his ass in wind. And so, so much of this investment into solar and wind is so economically ridiculous that the only people who would fund it are governments. And it's going to, it's going to cause inflation. It's going to cause a slowdown in economic growth. It's going to cause rate payers, electrical payers, to pay ridiculous sums for energy. Look at what people are paying for gas right now in California. And uh, I've written a lot about this. And if you're interested in knowing more facts about it, I have a website, bostonblackout23.com, which will be in the notes, I'm sure. And the truth is that Boston, for many years, has been buying natural gas from Putin instead of allowing a pipeline to be built connecting the Marcellus to Boston. And it's the dumbest public policy that we have seen in the United States in a very, very, very long time. And the economic consequences of it are going to be severe, but so will the political consequences. And I think you're going to see a big shift in rhetoric, especially from the Democratic Party around energy. Within the next six to 12 months, natural gas is going to become a clean source of energy. And you will see people saying that natural gas is okay now because we have changed all the gathering technology to eliminate the methane leaks and all the stuff. And so now it can be burned clean. It can be harvested clean. It's going to be a clean source of power. And if that doesn't happen, then what you're going to see is a massive rise in energy costs and in um, grid instability in the Northeast. And I don't care what these people say, the moment the power goes out, people are going to change their minds. So give me some 
ideas. I know you were talking about nuclear. That's a funny part where China has been going hard in the paint into nuclear. And I've never seen a public narrative shift as fast as Europe has on nuclear. I mean, it was like trying to shut down all these reactors. We're moving on. And then it was like 2022, all of a sudden, just kidding. Nuclear is actually green. We prefer to stay warm. I don't have the data in front of me, but I also know that over the last 10 years, China has built more coal-fired power plants than the entire United States has in total. So a lot of people don't understand this about energy. Energy is completely elastic. Demand for it is completely elastic. If you lower the price of energy, people will use more energy, period. Gas prices go down. Do people use less gas? No, they use way more gas. Why? They buy bigger cars. The spending on energy remains pretty constant. And so if you build more power plants and the price of electricity goes down, people are just going to use more of it. And so people who think that by adding wind and solar to the grid, you're going to get rid of fossil fuels, it's nonsense. It's never going to happen. People are going to continue to use as much energy as is produced, period. In fact, as you know, as you know there is no greater, there's no tighter correlation in all of economics than between real GDP growth and per capita electrical generation. So if you, if you want your country to be rich, you've got to generate more electricity. You have to. And you're going to do that in the cheapest way possible. And the, over the long term, the cheapest way possible is nuclear, which is why nuclear is going to win eventually. The trouble, of course, is that it is dangerous. And when there are accidents, people freak out. But you do know that there are 82 secret nuclear reactors in the United States that provide a critical source of power to the government. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's the nuclear Navy. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't something that's been around for the last few years. Like, nuclear Navy's been around for a long time. Since the 50s. Yeah. And when's the last time there was an accident in the nuclear Navy that killed anybody? How about never? So my point is, if you can build a reactor that's safe enough to be on a boat in a war zone, and that doesn't ever lead to serious accidents, then why can't people build a safe, small-scale nuclear reactor in a community? And the answer is just a matter of educating people. They just don't understand that radiation is not nearly as dangerous as everybody assumes it is. Look at the Fukushima accident. How many people died because of radiation? No one. That was a complete disaster. And so then they they go to Chernobyl. But most people don't know. Chernobyl was operating to develop nuclear warheads. It wasn't operating in the parameters that you would operate a normal electrical plant. You know, they were messing around and they found out. But that shouldn't tarnish the nuclear power industry as a whole. And so I do think you'll see that over time, but I think that transition will be very slow. I do not think that nuclear power will outpace natural gas power for at least 50 years. There was someone I saw on Twitter that said, we need to rebrand nuclear's just got a bad image marketing we need to rebrand it elemental energy that sounds way better like much more palatable we had nathan mirvold on the show post the link in the show notes who's been trying to develop safer smaller nuclear power plants in partnership with bill gates and others and has been having one hell of a time but they're finally getting a pilot project done in wyoming idaho montana one of those states that's a little more forward thinking so Do you have an investment idea there? Anything we can uh, think about? Yeah, I do. It's actually uh, my latest recommendation in my newsletter. So why don't you guys subscribe? There you go. (laughs) Good lead in. Because when I used to look through 13Fs all the time, 
my favorite managers were not the ones that were just the hedge fund hotel names. You're like, oh my God, every single fund owns this stock. But it was the ones when I'd look at the 13F and um, Seth Klarman is such a great example of this at Bowpost, one of the most famous value investors ever. You look at a 13F and I would just go down and be like, I've never heard of this company. I don't know this stock. What is this? And to me, that's the whole point if you're digging through. And so reading about this, I'd never heard of this company. And if you pull up the chart, it's a beautiful chart too. So check it out, listeners. Go sign up for Porter's. So how does it work for listeners? You got a free service. You got a paid service. No, I'm a one-man band. So there's really just one thing I'm offering right now. And it's a newsletter that covers a unique opportunity every other week. So it's called Porter and Company. And the newsletter name is The Big Secret on Wall Street. And what I'm trying to do is, is find these really long-lived investment ideas that you can own for five to seven years at least, and that are, that are still really well ahead of the crowd, right? I'm not, I'm not going to be covering, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of what is the, what's the trend that's just not falling apart? Tesla. I'm not going to be covering electric cars in this newsletter. You, you can find all that research anywhere else. I'm trying to figure out, for example... Who's going to be building the very best small-scale nuclear reactors that the world's going to be buying up by the thousands in 10 years? And I want to get involved in that now. And I want to get involved in housing now because it's completely out of favor and nobody understands it the way that I do. And I can show you exactly which company to buy now that'll perform over the next dozen years. And that's what we do. It's not rocket science. It's just deep dives into individual companies that have their own ecosystem, that have their own economics, that are going to continue to succeed regardless of whatever happens to the dollar and the, you know blah, blah, blah. But I do have one macro bet, and that is energy. I think that the price of energy is going to go way up. And I mean that for natural gas and oil. And I, I've, I've recommended a couple of different good ways to play it. But the very best long-term idea is the companies that are going to be able to take gas from America where it is very cheap and distribute it to the world where it is very dear. And there's a company underway right now called Tolarian, which is the new business of Soki Sharif. And Suki Sharif, talking about people who love to create business art, he got started in LNG back in 2006. And Meb, I wrote one of the most famous newsletters of all time about this guy. And I said he was the biggest idiot of all time. And that if you were trying to have a contest for the worst business idea ever, his new company, which is called Chenier, would be the winner. Why? Well, because he thought we were running out of oil. This is the, 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 the peak period for peak oil ideas. And he was going to spend $2 billion to build an LNG import terminal at the Gulf Coast. Are you kidding me? So I wrote, the headline was madness. And I wrote that he would definitely go bankrupt. And this is the worst idea ever. And of course, I was right. The stock collapsed. He almost went bankrupt. He got a big investment from some private equity firm. I can't remember if it was Apollo or Blackstone. I can't remember now who gave him the funding, but he got a lot more money and he reversed course. He went from building an LNG import terminal to building an LNG export terminal. And then I recommended the stock and it went from two to, I think it's around 160 today. So there is already a case study in America for why this is a great uh, use of capital investment and why it's likely to succeed. His new project combines gas reserves with a new LNG export terminal on the Gulf Coast. So he's vertically integrating. He's buying up wells in Haynesville, which is in northern Louisiana. He's built a pipeline called Driftwood down to the Gulf Coast, and now he's building an LNG export facility, also called Driftwood. And 
he's going to be able to strike a long-term supply deal with somebody in Europe or somebody in Asia or both that will pay for the development of this project over the next three to five years. And he's going to be selling gas, I would guess, at over the long term at around $10, uh, you know, an MCF, whereas the prices today are around three. And then they're also going to, you know, you have to tack on maybe another $2 for the processing and the shipping. But that price is, you know, without that energy, you've seen a revolution in Sri Lanka. You've seen problems in uh, Pakistan, you know, all these people who got priced out of the market because Europe started buying up all the LNG, they need energy and they're not going away. Most people don't understand that across the world in emerging markets, emerging markets people use only a quarter of the energy that developed world people use. It's not going to be like that another 10 years. They're going to continue to grow their populations and they're going to continue to grow their energy density. And there is going to be more and more demand for energy. It's just inevitable. One of the big benefits of becoming intimately knowledgeable about a company and stock is sometimes you realize that the story has changed. And this is a great illustration. We recently did a podcast, listeners, with Mark Cahodes. You listen to the end of the episode. He has a really great story about a similar situation where he was short a company, but new information came to light company shifted and all of a sudden became one of his best investments ever. I think that's a great illustration of not becoming married to, you know, your idea or position. I mean, and and for those who are thinking, oh, no, Porter's just a forever energy bull. I've heard you talk when oil was above 100 at many, many years ago, days past when you're like, no, 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 oil's going down to 20, 30 bucks, whatever it was at the time. So you're not just a one way... Oil was at 140, and I was I explained it was going to 40. That was in 2014 because of the shale boom. Absolutely. And by the way, I don't have a particular eye on where the price of oil is going to be in a year. I think there could be a lot of demand destruction if there is a severe recession, which I think is very likely. But my point is, if that were to occur, I'd be a buyer. I don't think in 10 years, we'll use less fossil fuels. I'm certain we will use twice as much. And now the pricing is very attractive and the business are being run much more rationally. There's another example of a story I had not heard of, which is a, a great deep dive. We're keeping you a long time, so let's wind down to a few more questions while we got you, let you uh, out into the beautiful Florida afternoon. Of the things we talked about today, let's hit back to this topic, and you can pick one. I'm sure there's very many. But of the investing world beliefs you have that the vast majority of your peers disagree with you on, which ones come to mind? It's funny when you mentioned Tesla, because one of my 20, I just published this piece called I Disagree, but one of my 20 was you don't have to have an opinion on every investment in stocks. Like you don't have to have an opinion on Tesla. Just saying, I don't have opinion on this is totally okay. Like the media gets obsessed with whatever the topic du jour is, Bitcoin, Tesla, whatever it is today. So what's something that you believe that the vast majority of your peers disagree with you on? I think that Bitcoin will supplant the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency in my lifetime. That's definitely non-consensus, except for this tiny cohort. I mean, Porter, have you been just poisoned by the water in Miami? I mean, that's where all the crypto people are flocking. I was going to say, are you in El Salvador? You've been. I know you spent a lot of time in Nicaragua over the years, but... I have never bought a single crypto, and I don't think of Bitcoin as a crypto. Yeah. But I buy a lot of Bitcoin. And what's the way you think about that? Is that you think about it through obviously not doing it on FTX? Do you just buy the spot? Do you buy funds? Do you buy what? 
Lately, I've been buying $10,000 worth of Bitcoin every day uh, through Coinbase. And uh, maybe this is foolish, but I think Coinbase is regulated in the US and I think that my Bitcoin is safe there. I also, of course, every now and again, will take, take some out and put it in cold storage. There's devices for doing that you can buy easily on Amazon. I started buying Bitcoin at around 5,000 and I stopped when it went over 10. And I started again recently when it went below 20. I'm no expert about what it costs to mine, but I'm pretty sure that the current price is below the average likely cost to mine over the next 18 months. And that's the only way I do it. And I, by the way, I, you know, for many years, I've bought gold in the same way. When gold goes well below the cost to mine it, I'll start buying it. And I've never sold an ounce of gold and I've never sold a single Bitcoin. And for me, this is just savings. I think people get really confused about what the role of Bitcoin is. It's not a money that you would use for transactions. It's a, a reserve money. And if you know anything about e economics, you know about Gresham's Law, you know that Bitcoin is never going to circulate because it's a much harder form of money. And that'll never happen. You know, people are always going to transact in the weaker currency and hoard the stronger, which is perfectly normal. So I love it when I hear, when I talk with, you know, journalists and people who don't understand anything about economics or, you know, the history of money. And they're like, well, when's the last time you used Bitcoin to pay for a haircut? And it's like, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> the way that I like to describe it, gold was the perfect money for the industrial revolution because its scarcity grew at the exact same rate that productivity grew because of the internal combustion engine. So as we had more steam shovels, we could dig more gold, we could produce more gold, there was more supply, but the remaining gold got harder to find, gold became progressively more scarce. And it was a perfect connection between the gains in productivity and the industrialization and the growing scarcity of gold, which is why an ounce of gold is always paid for a fine men's suit that goes back to the time of the Bible to today. So it's been a very stable form of savings. And I think that the information age will challenge that. I think that gold will become much cheaper to produce and much more plentiful as technology improves. The things sort of seem impossible now. In fact, I, I once wrote an April Fool's joke about turning seawater into gold. But obviously, there's a lot of gold deposited outside of river mouths around the world. And eventually, technology will lead us to find a way to collect those, uh, those atoms and harvest it. I'm not saying that's going to happen in, in, in my lifetime. I'm just saying that's inevitable that that will happen. And so going forward, I believe that Bitcoin will be the harder, firmer form of money because its productivity is tied to computing power. And so ultimately, technology will give us dominance over the physical universe. And what will remain, of course, is growth and intelligence. And, and that's computing. And Bitcoin is the appropriate money for that growth and productivity. Fun. Well, in a related note, we manage a lot of momentum strategies and some of the global ones have not owned precious metals in quite some time, but they've been adding recently along with for pro probably the last four or five months, global equities, foreign and emerging, which absolutely because the dollars rolled over. Yeah. So they've started shipping into those. There's a lot of interesting uh, emerging market debt out there too. That's very high yielding and very interesting. As our mutual friend says often, Steve Sugarud's favorite investment is when value and momentum and trend intersect. It's rare. It doesn't always happen. But emerging markets, I put in that bucket. I've certainly been just waiting for Godot for many years as emerging markets have been cheap, but they seem to be getting a little momentum. I don't want to jinx it. We'll see what happens.
Sugar Root says he likes things that are cheap, hated, and ended up trend. Yeah. And I and I always replied, that's why we're friends. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I'm cheap. I'm widely hated. And I have been in an uptrend. I love it. Porter, of your thousands of investments over the decades, what's been your most memorable? Good, bad, in between? You can even list a few if you want. My most memorable is not hard at all. It was uh, shorting General Motors because... Every quarter I wrote what the chairman of General Motors should have been telling investors if he was being honest. And the answer was, we can't possibly make enough money selling cars to pay back our debts or our pension obligations. It's not even close. And I started writing these in 2005, 2006. And of course, General Motors did go bankrupt eventually. And um, I just had so much fun doing that. And the funniest part was how many of my poor subscribers actually replied thinking that it was actually from the chairman of General Motors. <laughs> so they, they didn't, they completely missed the satire. Yeah. I had so much fun doing that because um, there just aren't many instances in finance where things are completely crystal clear. There is absolutely no way out. And I thought the same thing for about General Electric for many years as well, which finally, of course, did, did roll over and now has been dismantled. But those are my favorite situations. And they end up being shorts, not because I like to see companies fail, but because that's the one part of finance where you can have absolute certainty. There is no way, there is absolutely no way the equity in its current structure can repay those debts. So there's either going to have to be a mass dilution or there will be a bankruptcy. We love having short sellers on the podcast. One is because they, by definition, tend to be very independent thinkers. There's a little bit of a contrarian bone in their body. They often really have to understand position sizing and risk because otherwise they get taken out to the woodshed and lose all their money. And they're always, you know, have have a screw or two loose. But over the past decade, this romping, stomping US bull market, you know, there's all the charts that show like short selling funds and percent of stocks that are short, like just declining to like to the point where they're almost extinct. And we kept saying, look, shorts are the lifeblood. They're like the immune cells of the financial system. And I I regularly get into fights, particularly like February 2021, when short sellers are evil and GME and all that crazy stuff. But I said, look, you know, you think the regulators and politicians are going to keep these companies honest? Like, no, like it's who was talking about FTX? It was Mark Cahodes. Like, it's not people, it's not the government is not going to, they get it right eventually, usually. Yeah, after the horse is long out of the barn. Yeah. So, I mean, like, the short sellers are not only useful, but necessary to keeping the system honest. Because, man, there's a non-trivial amount of uh, of frauds in the corporate space. You think it doesn't, wouldn't, exa- wouldn't exist in these giant companies, but it does, <laughs> does regularly. So, I love those ideas because they, they at least spin you up and make you think as well. Porter, it's been too long. This has been a lot of fun. Remind the listeners, they heard it, but what's the best domain? Where do they go? Well, we're asking you guys to go to bostonblackout23.com and you'll see some of our work there and have the opportunity to sign up to get access to all of it. And Meb, it was a genuine pleasure to talk to you as always. And I'm very grateful that you had me on the show and supported my new business. Um, It's a favor I'll never forget. Yeah, man. Well, love to uh, do this in person soon. And so thanks much for joining us today. Very good. My pleasure. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. 
If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>